Father, we recognize your presence here with us this morning. Pray that you would speak to us today through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit, that you would make yourself known to us. Father, would you bring the spirit to make the resurrected Christ present with us as we sit here this morning, as we look at this text. Would you give us eyes to see what we need to see, ears to hear what we need to hear, hearts to be transformed, that they would be soft and moldable to your spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for this time. I ask that you would be with us and pray in your name. Amen. Well, you guys heard the text this morning. (laughs) Buckle up. We've got gouged out eyes, a weeping nation, and an angry farmer. So let's jump in. Uh, We are in a series called We Want a King. If you're new with us, uh, welcome. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad you joined us all the way from North Carolina, some of you. So good to see you. Um, But we are walking through looking at the first three kings in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel, Saul, David, and Samuel. And we find ourselves today in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Just um, a quick recap of where we've been. We jumped in to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where we started the series a couple of weeks ago. Uh, And what we saw is God's people, the nation of Israel, were crying out that they wanted a king like the other nations. They were tired of waiting for God's timing. They were tired of following God they couldn't see. They wanted a king like the other nations to fight their battles for them. God says that's, that's not a good idea. And he tells his man Samuel, his prophet, to warn them, saying, like, if you want to go down this road, this is what you're going to get. Uh, an earthly king is just going to take and take and take from you, gives them a stern warning. The people ignore it, and they say, ah, we don't care about that. We want a king like all the other nations around us. So God, in his grace, says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want to show you how this is not going to work out for your benefit. And, uh, and so uh, we get introduced last week to the person of Saul, who's going to be Israel's first king in chapter 9 and chapter 10. And we see that Saul from the outside, man, this guy looks like the guy, right? Rico Suave. He's the best looking guy in all the land. He's taller, heads and shoulders above anybody else. He's got deep pockets. He's rich. He looks like on the outside, the prime candidate to be the next king. But we also saw last week in chapters 9 and 10, man, he has massive character flaws. Right? He's up to all kinds of shenanigans in the midst of uh, trying to figure out his life. He can't follow very well. He can't lead very well. Then he starts hiding with his language. He doesn't tell the full truth. And then he starts physically hiding when they nominate him as king. But even in the midst of that, we saw that even as messed up as Saul was, God still chose to use him and did use him. His spirit falls upon Saul. He has an encounter with the Lord that's real. That's encouragement for us that God can choose to use us even wherever we are. So that's where we've been introduced. That's where we are in the story. Let's pick up uh, where we are because the, the story continues. And as we just read in the beginning of chapter 11, we now find the nation of Israel under threat. They're under threat by this king uh, from the outside. And for us as a community, as we think of Redemption Peoria, if you are a part of this community, you belong here, um, we're a community under threat as well. 
Now, you might hear those words and you might go, well, like we're not really under threat. The people in Ukraine, the Christians in Ukraine, they're under threat. And so you can easily minimize what threat actually means. But if you define the word threat, it's anyone or anything against you. And in the last year, just in the last year, as pastors and leaders in this community, we've sat with people at dinner tables, over coffee, in living rooms, in our offices. And these are some of the things they've dealt with that have been under threat in their lives. They've dealt with depression, suicidal ideation, addiction, job loss, anxiety, abuse, childhood trauma, loneliness, misrepresentation in the workplace, miscarriages, loss of life, relational confusion, internal fighting within the family unit, church hurts, abandonment, sexual abuse, unforgiveness, marital strife, financial crisis, physical illness and hospitalization, political division, losses of spouses. And as I typed this this week, I thought of every single situation that we have as leaders and pastors come alongside people to try and walk them through the things that they are going through. We are a community under threat. And what do we do when you feel like you don't have hope? When you feel like those threats are so real and you feel like you're drowning and you're looking around and it doesn't seem like there's anybody there to rescue you out of the water. What do you do when you're under threat? Where do you go when you're under threat? Where do you turn when you feel like all hope is lost? Hopefully the text is going to answer that for us this morning as we see God's people under threat. So, if your Bible's not already open, please open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 11 on your phone or a physical copy. Follow along with us. As we mentioned even uh, earlier, um, the best thing you can do is follow along in the story. Be read up before you walk in because we're going through larger chunks of, of text at a time typically. And so, you, again, you can grab this card, put it in your Bible as you read throughout the week. We want you to follow along with us. Um, let me give you a summary of kind of the three movements that we're going to track through in all of chapter 11 this morning. It's a shorter chapter, which is nice. Next week we'll be in chapters 13 and 14. It's a lot of text. So this is where we're going in this chapter, in chapter 11. We're going to first see, again, God's community under threat. The first four verses we already looked at. We're going to look at how the Spirit rescues. Spirit rescues, and then because of that, there's an enthronement of the king. Those are the headers that we're going to go after if you're taking notes, and those headers will continue to stay up on the screen after we read each section of the text. So let's jump in, 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. The Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, on this condition I'll make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept 
allowed. First thing that we're going to see in our text today is that God's people are under threat. They're under threat. The nation of Israel, so Jabesh Gilead, that's a corner of Israel. That's a part of Israel. That's a part of the nation of Israel, of God's people. And the Ammonites are threatening them. And these are bad people. Nahash is a bad dude. He's not good. We talked last week at Anytime we look at the Old Testament historical narrative, we need to pay attention to a couple things. We need to pay attention to descriptions, what the narrator gives us for describing certain people like Saul that we talked about last week. And we need to pay attention to names. Names mean something in the Old Testament. They don't mean something to us. We named our kids. It had no significance at all. We liked the way they sounded, right? Um, That's not the case in the Bible in the Old Testament. So the word Nahash, it literally means serpent, Okay, so this king of the Ammonites, he's a bad dude. His name is Serpent. Anytime your name is Serpent in a story, it's, you're the bad guy. Every single time. Jungle Book, Kai, the Serpent, he's the bad guy. G.I. Joe, any old school, it's Cobra Commander, right? Like even Cobra Kai, the bad guy, the Karate Kid, right? Like anytime your name's Serpent, it's not a good thing. And this dude was not good. And so uh, he's going to attack this little corner of Israel, and he comes to them, and the way they approach this threat is they try to negotiate it first. They go, uh, uh, let, let, tell us, like, let, let's go send somebody out. And he goes, listen, here's, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to take you over, but if I take you over, I'm going to gouge out all of your right eyes. Um, and the reason that he would do this, and this was kind of practice in the, in the ancient Near East at the time. It sounds like really barbaric to us, but this happened. He would go, okay, if I gouge out all your eyes, you can't fight against me. Like your army will be disabled. Not only will your army be disabled and you won't be able to fight, but also you're going to have shame upon you. Only having one eye as you live the rest of your life. So this is the agreement. This is negotiation that goes back and forth. And then God's people say, well, give us seven days. They're kind of stalling or buying time to go like, there's no hope. I don't know if you've done that in your life when you've had threats. You have a bill to pay or a person to talk to. And it's like, you know, that, that's not going away. But you're like, I'll take care of it next week, or I'll talk to them next week, right? This is what's happening in God's people. They're kind of stalling for time. And then we see what happens next. Um, and, and even in this idea of God's people coming under threat, we need to, again, um, understand the context of the Old Testament. We see these kings and these bad guys coming under God's people, and they're under threat. When we look at the New Testament, threats kind of get redefined for us in Ephesians 6 and other places. Right, because it's not necessarily people or kings or nations. Instead, what does Ephesians 6 say? That we're coming under threat because we have to redefine our enemy. That's anything actively trying to disrupt not only your relationship with God vertically, but also your relationship with others horizontally and your relationship with yourself. There's powers behind what happens in our lives in Ephesians 6. And so we have to be aware. The the worst thing that could happen is you just step outside on your normal day and you just think you're fine and then all of a sudden you get attacked in some way. You have a threat coming against you. And if you're part of God's people, we have threats coming at us every single day. And we need to be aware of that. There's forces that are diligently working against you and you're flourishing as a human as you're created in God's image. We're under threat, just like God's people. And as we're defining enemies, this idea of anything that's butting up against your flourishing in this holistic vein, where have you felt threatened 
by the enemies of God. Again, maybe it's something physical, like your body is breaking down. Maybe you went to the doctor and you got some type of diagnosis. Uh, we had the guy that runs this, uh, this property come in to us this morning, and last night uh, a terrible accident happened, and they lost one of their missionaries on the road, passed away. So maybe it's something physical. Maybe you're not getting enough sleep. Maybe you feel like you can never catch up. Do you realize that you're under threat? That that's a part of understanding how you walk with God. Maybe you're under threat emotionally. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you are anxious about something and it's just running through your mind and you're laying there at night and you can't get it out of your mind and you know you shouldn't be feeling this way, but it won't go away. And you have this anxiety that just feels like this weight on your chest and you don't know what to do with it. Maybe you're stressed. Maybe that's part of your emotional being under threat that you're worried about finances. You're worried about how to parent your kids because, man, you don't know how to parent your kids because none of us know how to parent our kids. Right? All these things are threats coming against you and you're flourishing. We need to recognize that as God's people. So maybe it's physical, maybe it's emotional, maybe it's spiritual. Maybe you're under threat because you keep believing the lies that the enemy is feeding you. He keeps telling you you're not good enough. He keeps telling you these certain things and you're believing it and then maybe you continue to stay in this same sin and you can't shake it. Like, man, I thought I was done with that. I thought it was out of it. And then all of a sudden you find yourself being tricked into believing the lie again. And then you are in the cycle of shame and doubt. All of these things, physically, emotionally, spiritually, they are threatening your existence as a flourishing human and as a follower of Jesus. Where do you go when you feel like you're under threat? And for those of us that follow Jesus and have been adopted by him into his family, do you know the greatest resource you have when you're under threat? Your greatest resource. Right, as I listed all those threats, physical, uh, emotional, spiritual, when I think about that, and I'm being real honest, when I think, what is my greatest resource to um, disarming this threat that is coming against me? Typically, I'm not thinking in a spiritual direction. Typically, I'm going like, well, if I had more money, that would solve my problem. Maybe it would. Do you know people with lots of money? I know some people with lots of money. They're really unhappy. Right? Sometimes we think our greatest resource to our threats is more money, more income, more assets. Sometimes in the physical realm, like, man, if I just had a better doctor, if I could get into the Mayo Clinic, if I could get the right treatment, then my threat would be neutralized. Sometimes we think our greatest resource is the next book, the next podcast, if I can just get educated enough to parent my teenage children well, I can do it. Now again, all those things are positive and can be helpful. Money is helpful. Doctors are helpful. Information is helpful. But do you know the greatest resource you have as a Christian when you're under threat? It's the fact that you can go to God in prayer. It's the fact that he actually hears you and he listens to you. And when we see in the text, what do the people do? They're crying out. They're weeping aloud. And oftentimes as Christians, we don't, we don't want to let ourselves be that vulnerable. We kind of want, okay, I'll figure it out. Let me do this or let me do this or let me somehow kind of control it instead of just being totally vulnerable and going, I can't do it. And God, I need you. God hears the cries of his people. 
God is more powerful than all of his enemies. God is more powerful than any circumstance you're in right now. He can rescue you like that if he wants to. And so some of us don't pray because we're going, well, I've tried that and God doesn't seem to be answering me and nothing seems to be happening. So I have to take control and start moving on this thing. And I would just challenge you. Movement is important. It doesn't mean you pray and you don't do anything, but pray. Continue to come back to God and cry out to him. He is the one that can answer you when you're under threat. And again, some of the reason we built this prayer space over here to the side, this used to be a storage closet. We ripped it out and we said, man, we want this to be a dedicated place to pray. You don't have to be in here to pray, obviously, but part of our response time every single week is we're saying, hey, if you want to write down a prayer and put it on the wall, or if you want to write down a prayer in there and put it on the wall, if you just want to go in and take communion in there and pray, it's a safe place. It's a quiet place that you can engage in that. And this is our best resource as Christians when we're under threat to pray, to ask God to meet us. I'd be curious if instead of as we do our response every week and saying, hey, there's part of the way we respond is we pray. There's a prayer space off to the side. If you want to go in there, you're more than welcome. Again, there's nothing magical about that room. You can pray in your seats. But if we said, hey, there's a space off to the side, and if you come in it, we're going to hand you a $100 bill. Everybody would be in that space. They could take their communion and just walk right over there, right? Like, because they go, okay, this can help me with my problem. But again, as Christians, we don't go like, do we really believe that prayer matters? Do we really believe that God will change things through prayer? Not because we're negotiating with God, but because God changes us when we pray. We're crying out to him to ask him to meet us. So I want to encourage everybody to go in that space. I hope nobody comes out of it, right? Like it's just clogged in there and now you're going well I don't want to be that guy that goes in there and I never go in there again like take advantage of that space take advantage of where you are in the seats take advantage of your greatest resource that you have when you are under threat and that's crying out to God and asking him to show up and continue to do it trust that he is doing it on his timing which is always hard for us So the first thing we see is that God's people are under threat, just like a lot of times we are under threat even in our day today. The second thing we say, let's pick the story back up in verse 5. How do God's people respond to this threat? Verse 5, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. Saul said, what is wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them up into pieces, sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. So the the ESV translates really literal here. Basically what he's saying is like, if you're not joining us in this army to go after these People, this is what's going to happen to you. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Verse 8, when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah, 30,000. They said to the messenger who had come, thus says, uh, this, you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came, And told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves to you, that you may do whatever seems good to you. Verse 11, and the next day Saul 
put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp, and in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So the first thing we see in this story is that God's people come under the threat. The second thing we see is that the Spirit rescues. The Spirit rescues. Last week we saw Saul being anointed as the king at the end of chapter 10. But he doesn't seem to be acting as king at this moment, right? We pick up in the story, in the next part of the story, the next scene, he's doing what he normally does. He's a farmer. He's out behind the oxen. He's not acting like a king at this moment, even though his people are under threat. And so as he comes out and he asks, like, what's going on? He says, the people are weeping. It says in verse 6 that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And as God uses Saul as his instrument to move to righteous anger, is godly. He uses it to send a message. Now, this is a nod. Uh, he cuts up this ox and he sends out. This is a nod to Judges, the very end of Judges, a couple books before this, where a, a human gets cut up and gets sent out. And so Saul is saying, like, listen, this is serious. You need to be aware that this is going to happen to us if we fall to this nation. And so we all need to rally together to fight against this king and this nation. So God sends his spirit to give Saul righteous anger, to send a message. He unites the people. The people come as one, it says. He uses Saul and his spirit to devise a strategy, this kind of surprise attack on the Ammonites. And then he organizes the troops. It's a three-sided attack, it says in the text. Saul takes action, delivering God's people from their threat. And God uses Saul by the power of his spirit as an instrument to rescue his people from threat. And the same spirit that rescued God from the people of the Ammonites is the same spirit that rescues us today from our enemies. Do you know, as you cry out to God in humility and dependence, he will send his spirit to rescue you. He will send his spirit through people, as instruments to come alongside you to help you in your time of need. And again, the craziest thing in the story in verse 6 is that the Spirit of God rushed onto Saul, but as followers of Jesus, the Spirit of God rushes into us. Like the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that spoke the earth and the solar system into creation, the Bible says lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus is housed in you. You have access to that type of power if you're a follower of Christ in the midst of your threats and the things that are coming after you. As God's people, the church, man, we ought to live like this rescue. We ought to be able to come alongside people when they're under threat to, to help them in their time of need. If you've been around church at all for any length of time, you may have heard this super old illustration, but I think it helped in the context here of what is going on in the story and what's going on in our lives when we're under threat. There's a man, he's a man of faith, and he finds himself in the ocean and he's drowning, right? You guys know where this is if you've heard this before, right? He's drowning and he can't get above the water and he's praying to God, he's going, God, help me, I'm drowning, I'm going to die, I don't know what to do. And so all of a sudden as he's praying, this paddle boulder comes along. Hey, do you need help? The guy goes, no, I'm waiting for God to rescue me. So the paddleboarder goes on. 
And he's praying, God, would you, would you rescue me? I'm drowning here. And the next thing, a fishing boat comes along and says, hey, hey, you look like you're in trouble. Do you need help? And the guy goes, no, no, I'm waiting for God to rescue me. The fishing boat goes along. The guy on his last breath as he's getting ready to go underwater, God, rescue me. I'm drowning. Don't you see me? All of a sudden, this helicopter comes overhead. Excuse me, sir. It looks like you need help. We're going to lower a rope. No, I'm waiting for God to rescue me. Goes away. Man goes underwater and drowns. Because he's a man of faith, he gets up to the gates and he says, God, what was the deal? You're supposed to be for me. I'm asking you to rescue me. I don't know how to swim. And God's like, I sent rescue for you. And you rejected it. So just like us when we're under threat, God is sending his people, the community you are around, to help rescue you. Some of us, you go like, well, I could never be a rescuer. I could never be somebody on a paddleboard or a boat or a helicopter coming to help somebody else because I'm a wreck. You know who else was a wreck? Our man Saul is a wreck. This is the one chapter, man, he looks really, really good, right? We talked about the rise and fall of Saul. Like, this is the very top of the roller coaster in this chapter. Next week, we're going to, it's going to go like that. So you can be used by God in your community to help come alongside somebody, to help rescue them, to point them to Jesus. If that's true, if God has given us his spirit to come alongside people, to help them, to help rescue them out of their trauma and all the things we already listed, why don't we do it? Right? Because I talk to people all the time, and you do too, that talk, that don't know Jesus. They, when you talk about church, they're going like, that, that's not a rescue place. That's like a place of judgment. I don't want any part of that. Why is that the case? I think it's often because we don't really understand how to let the Spirit work in and through us, right? Like, we, we can maybe intellectually go, okay, like, when I, when I make that decision to come to Jesus, when, when God grabs me out of my dead state and wakens me up to who he is through the power of his Spirit, and now I give my life to Jesus, I know I have the Spirit in me. It's deposited in me, but, man, I, like, I don't know how to access that power. I don't know what that looks like. And I think that's oftentimes why we get it wrong or people are looking at us to help rescue them and we're no help at all. This is a super old illustration, just like almost as old as the one I just told you about the boat and stuff. Um, but this was really helpful for me in college when I first saw this. So if you've seen it, just, just bear with me, take it in. Um, some of our lives, here's what it looks like. If this is your life right here, right, this kind of represents you. You're born, you live your life, but really apart from Christ, again, you're just, you're headed toward destruction apart from God, and somehow God intervenes. He gets a hold of your heart. Somebody shares the truth of the gospel with you, and you're changed forever. And when that happens, again, the Bible says that his spirit is deposited into you. And it comes inside you to guarantee for where you're going to end up when it's all said and done. And man, God pours out a spirit into you just like he poured it onto Saul. But here's the problem. You don't know how to access that spirit. You're not exactly sure. The Holy Spirit's like super confusing. It's like the really crazy uncle. You're not sure about him because how people have talked about him. Or like, does, does he exist? I know he's here, but I, I don't exactly know how to interact with him. And so 
this is how your life looks. You know the Spirit's in there, but it looks exactly the same. Like, you look like every other person, whether, like, well, you know, I know where I'm going to go when I die. And if the gospel gets presented to you is that ticket to heaven, and all the Spirit is is this, and you're just kind of in this waiting room waiting to die, and then you're going to float away to heaven, like, you're, you're missing what God wants for you. He wants you to be transformed now, that you can be changed now. But again, often we just sit like this. And this is how our lives look. And so people looking in going like, how is this guy going to rescue me? He looks just like me. His marriage is in shambles. His work, he, he cuts corners at work. He, he, he doesn't live any different other than maybe he goes to church on a Sunday and that's it. So what God is calling us to as his people, just as his people in the Old Testament, as we cry out to God, he sends his spirit. And the way we activate that power that's within us is we do this. We pray and we go, God, I need you to change me. God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And as you continue to stir that humility, that dependence through prayer, and you're going, God, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Your life starts to look like this. It starts to look different. You start to feel different inside because you're not trusting yourself anymore. You're trusting God's spirit working in and through you. And all those things we listed, depression, marital strife, anxiety, trauma, all those things, instead of us trying to figure it out on our own and trying to make strategies on our own, could we cry out to God and say, God, I need, I'm so desperate for your spirit to come and invade this area of my life. I'm helpless without you. Helpless. It's only when we get to that point as we pray and we stir and we ask God to meet us through prayer that he comes and he answers it. Otherwise, it's like, what are we doing? And as we see this community under threat, we see them cry out to God. And how does God rescue them? He uses Saul as his instrument, but it's only through his spirit. We need to recognize the problems that we have cannot be solved outside of the Spirit of God. So they're under threat. We see the Spirit rescue them in this story and in this moment. How do God's people react once they've been rescued? Let's pick up the story at the end of it, verse 12. It says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, so shall reign over us. So again, just from context, pause for a second real quick. The end of chapter 10 last week, we didn't get to this last verse. Uh, uh, Saul gets anointed as king, and there's some people, it says they're fools in the crowd. They, they go like, well, Saul can't rescue us. And that's kind of the end of the chapter. And so this is picking up going like, who are those dudes? Who are the haters that said Saul couldn't rescue us because he rescued us? Let's kill those guys. <laughs> Let's put them to death. Verse 13, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death in this day. For today, the Lord has worked his salvation in Israel. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. They sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel greatly rejoiced. They were under threat, the spirit rescued them, and then they moved to enthrone the king. 
What's our response as God rescues us as we depend and cry out on the Spirit and he sends the Spirit to work in and through us and around us with the people that he's given us in our community? Our proper response is what we see Saul doing in verse 13. He gives credit to Christ. Not to Christ. He gives credit to the Lord. Right? He gives credit where credit is due. Now, again, we see Saul do this well in humility. He's trusting the Spirit, and I think he's still in the Spirit in this moment, in these texts. He's going, no, 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 wait a second. God rescued us today. We're not going to put anybody to death. This is the last time we see Saul give credit to God. What starts to happen is he starts to gain power and prestige as his insecurities start to come to the surface, and instead of giving God the credit or the person the credit that's due, he wants to take it for himself. He doesn't do that here. He does it right here. In humility, he says, no, no, God is the one that rescued us. So when we are under threat and God rescues us through the Spirit, we should give credit where credit is due, that God is the one that has rescued us through his Spirit. And then we see Samuel. What does Samuel, God's prophet, do in this midst of being rescued? He pushes the people to worship the Lord. Right? As we understand those threats, and these people are under threat, they're going like, our lives are going to be done. We're going to lose our right eye. We're going to not have the ability to fight. We're going to be in shame the rest of our lives. We're going to be enslaved to this bad, bad leader, and God rescued us. Now, when you know you've been rescued from something, you tend to celebrate in a way that's appropriate of the rescue. Like, do you know you've been rescued from stuff? Right? When we sing in our response, it should be an overflow of your gratitude to Christ. Whether it's something that's happened this week or something that happened a year ago or 10 years ago, you put yourself in that space in imagination and you realize how God rescued you. We have the conversation all the time with my friends. We're going like, what if God never got a hold of you? Like, what would your life look like? It's like, man, it would be a wreck. It'd be an absolute train wreck. Do you realize how God has rescued you and are you celebrating appropriately? We see a a massive emotional shift in the text, right? The beginning, the first scene we see in verse 4, what are the people doing? There's great weeping for the people. And then the last words of verse 15 is that they're greatly rejoicing. It's the same language that's echoed in Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. That carries, like moving from weeping and going, God, you need to show up. God shows up, and then because of that, you're greatly rejoicing. That's our call as God's people in the midst of this. And what do they do? They enthrone Saul as the king and their rescuer because he has rescued them from their threat. They enthrone him as king. And in this story, the Bible points us to the ultimate story of the Bible, the whole Bible. As a king, by the power of the Spirit, Jesus rescues his people from their enemy. It's the whole point of the entire scripture. And because of this rescue that Jesus brings, we enthrone him as king, and he ascends and sits to the right hand of the Father. So even as we look at this story that points us to the ultimate story, in this story, they enthroned Saul because he delivered them from the threat that lasted only a few weeks, even though it was heavy. But we enthroned Jesus for delivering us from a threat that has tormented us from all of human history. 
In this story, they enthroned Saul with a kingdom that was perishable and had an expiration date to it. But for us, we enthroned Jesus with an imperishable kingdom with a reign that does not expire, that will last for eternity. In this story, they enthroned Saul because he has demanded that 330,000 men fight for him in battle. But we enthroned Jesus who fought the greatest battle on our behalf. In this story, they enthroned Saul because he spared them from being humiliated, having their eyes gouged out. But we enthroned Jesus who was humiliated and wounded for us so that we could be healed. They enthroned Saul in this story for crushing the head of the serpent named Nahash. But we enthroned Jesus who's crushed the head of the serpent named Satan. And in this story, they enthroned Saul because he delivered Israel from the power of the Ammonites, but we enthrone Jesus because he has delivered us from sin and death and hell. This is the king we get to respond to this morning and worship him. As we realize, and I hope you realize this morning, that man, you are under some type of threat in your life. As you recognize that and you realize, man, I need God's spirit. You cry out to him and through prayer and humility, you ask him to work in you and you ask him to work in the community around you to rescue you from what's going on in your life. Don't keep it a secret. Don't keep it behind. The enemy would want you not to tell anybody, but you need to come out of hiding. You need to ask for help from God and from the community that you're involved in for rescue and as you get rescued it's our response to worship God to sing to give to be reminded at communion of where we find our identity is in him this is the king we get to worship this morning in our response with let's pray together father I pray that as we look at this story we would recognize ourselves in it God, that as we face trials, we face threats in our lives, whether they feel small or they seem big, that we would cry out to you, that we would stop trying to fix it on our own, and that we would rely on your spirit that lives in us, and we would rely on your people that live around us for rescue. We wouldn't be like the man drowning and saying, I'm waiting for you to rescue me in some type of way, but we would have our eyes open to how you might be choosing to engage with us, to rescue us, to love us. And I pray because of that, God, we would worship you. We would celebrate you, King Jesus, that you are our only king. And we put you back on the throne where you belong this morning. Help us do that in the midst of our response this morning. We love you. We trust you. We ask that you be with us in this time. Amen.